Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. Welcome to 2019. May this year be a more peaceful one for you as you all work toward emotional safety in your homes. I still have a really bad cold, but we are going to start this new year off well with Dr. Omar Minwala on today's episode. He is a licensed psychologist and clinical sexologist who offers highly specialized psychological services related to sex addiction and intimate partner abuse. We have had Dr. Minwala on before, and his episode was so extremely popular that we're having him back on today. If you want to know more about him or you haven't heard the previous episode, please search for Minwala on the BTR website and listen to that other podcast first. Today, Dr. Minwala is going to talk to us about codependency and what that model is and why he disagrees with it. So before he can talk about why he disagrees with it, he's going to talk to you about what it is. So I'm just going to let him start from there. First of all, let's take a step back and just look at the term codependency because the co-sex addiction model really comes from the codependency model which is typically used in 12-step addiction programs. According to Melody Beatty, who actually wrote a book called Codependent No More, How to Stop Controlling Others and Start Caring for Yourself, she wrote that in around 1987. She writes that the word codependency probably developed in the chemical dependency scene in Minnesota, probably around the late 1970s. And it was originally a term used to describe some of the symptoms that people would have who were closely related or in a relationship with someone with a chemical dependency problem. The basic idea was that codependents were people whose lives had become unmanageable as a result of living in a committed relationship with, for example, an alcoholic. Wives of alcoholics back then actually developed a 12-step program for themselves to help with this that they called Al-Anon. And Melody Beatty actually herself admits that it's a challenging term to define exactly. She actually writes in her book that codependency has a fuzzy definition because it's a gray, fuzzy condition. It's a challenging term. I think a lot of people have different definitions. It's also become a popularized term in our culture, so people just kind of use it in various ways and kind of confusing for everybody. According to her, her definition is a codependent person is one who has let another person's behavior affect him or her and who is obsessed with controlling that person's behavior. Codependency is defined as a process addiction an addiction to certain mood-altering behaviors, such as a tendency to behave in overly passive or excessively caretaking ways that negatively impact one's relationship and quality of life. A lot of people argue that codependency is a disease and describe it as a chronic progressive illness and that codependents want and need sick people to be happy in an unhealthy way. And then what happened as the concept and idea of sex addiction emerged in the 1980s, the sex addiction field and sex addiction professionals actually applied the concept of codependency to people in relationships with sex addicts and called this co-sex addiction. And so from this view, a partner's symptoms, reactions, and behaviors are seen as part of her own disease called co-sex addiction. 
for example, Stephanie Carnes has a definition of co-sex addiction in her book, Mending a Shattered Heart, which was published around 2008. There, she describes a co-sex addict as someone who is married to or in a significant relationship with a sex addict and demonstrates a common set of behavioral characteristics. These characteristics include denial, preoccupation, enabling, rescuing, taking excessive responsibility, emotional turmoil, efforts to control, compromise of self, anger, and sexual issues. And then she goes on to write, like sex addiction, co-sex addiction can range in severity. Some individuals will find they experience a few of these characteristics, and for others, they may demonstrate the vast majority of them and may also find they cause severe disruption in their life. So to summarize, the co-sex addiction model really suggests that the intimate partner or spouse of a sex addict has her own disease. Her disease is diagnosed by her attempts to control or affect the sex addiction. So control becomes like a huge diagnostic criteria. And the co-sex addict also has these other codependent characteristics. And then treatment for her involves teaching and helping her to stop her attempts to control or affect the sex addiction and to recognize these attempts as part of her illness. And her attempts to control or affect the sex addiction actually become acting out behaviors or slips. And recovery is focused on helping her develop a spiritual relationship with a higher power and managing any of these attempts to control or affect the sex addict or the sex addiction. Within the traditional sex addiction model, the idea is that there's a sex addict and a co-sex addict. They both have an addiction. They both require a 12-step program. They have both contributed to the problem. And often a partner has traditionally been assumed to have co-sex addiction simply by being in a relationship with a sex addict. If she does not accept this, it's actually seen as being in denial. So that's kind of a description of the traditional model and approach. And even today, there are still treatment centers and practitioners that endorse this view of the partner. There has been some evolution and some movement away from that um, in the last probably 10 years. But I still find that a lot of partners describe and talk about experiencing this kind of approach and model and it's still fairly out there you know yeah the two most common 12-step programs are COSA for co-sex addict and Essanon which is the victim program or in this case what they would describe as enabler program for a companion to SA which is sexaholics anonymous for people who aren't familiar with that you just describing that is like, whoa, the question I'm going to ask you seems pretty obvious, like anyone would come to challenging this. But how did you come to challenging the co-sex addiction model and advocating for the trauma model to understand and treat wives of sex addicts? I'm trained as a clinical sexologist, which means that I actually specialize in human sexuality and treating sexual disorders. And at the University of Minnesota Medical School, I was actually trained 
with the compulsive sexual behavior model, and my training actually didn't believe or endorse in sex addiction at all, which is very different from many treatment professionals in the sex addiction field who often come from an addiction background, maybe having experience in chemical dependency first, or have their own personal or professional background with recovery, including 12-step programming, etc., so as a sexologist, I came to the work from a bit of a different angle, more from a sexual health background versus an addiction background. However, early in my career, I ended up taking a position as the clinical director of a sex addiction clinic, which utilized a very traditional sex addiction model. So even though that wasn't my background or even my training as a sexologist, I actually found myself really immersed and learning a lot about the Carnes model and the sex addiction model and people in recovery using 12 steps to support their treatment. When I was at that clinic, the dominant model was co-sex addiction for viewing the partner or codependency, and there weren't any real services at the clinic that I was working at. So I decided to create a support group for partners. And in working with partners directly, I started to notice a lot of trauma symptoms. So I started to do research on partner symptoms. And specifically as a sexologist, I was interested in how their sexuality was impacted. And so I began doing qualitative research and gathering written narratives. I was really overwhelmed by the descriptions in my research, which consistently appeared to describe symptoms of trauma. And I noticed that many of the symptoms appeared similar to rape trauma syndrome and symptoms of sexual trauma. I started to consider that maybe partners were actually trauma survivors rather than codependents. And I presented this idea at a national sex addiction conference for professionals. The response was very interesting because there was a strong show of support and a lot of emotional resonance from women and some of the female therapists or some of the younger professionals, and then definitely from partners themselves who would come up to me after I talked and really shared how much they felt validated, and some of them were very emotional. At the same time, there was also a strong pushback and a rejection of my work by many male therapists and sex addicts themselves and those professionals that maybe had been using a co-sex addiction model for many years. And so this reaction, this controversy, and just the intensity of all of the different reactions really piqued my interest and kind of pulled me in more and made me more curious as to what this was all about and why was it so controversial. And probably a year later, one of the therapists, a psychologist named Sylvia Jason, who was at the conference, invited me to conduct a workshop with partners and present my research. And so we actually started doing workshops for partners and really presenting the idea of trauma. Through my work, it became more and more clear to me and I became more confident that the idea of viewing the partner or spouse of a sex addict as someone who's experienced trauma was right on and that the idea of codependency was at least inadequate, if not really missing the mark. So I continued to do workshops and then I actually 
decided to practice using a trauma model. So I founded the Institute for Sexual Health in 2009 and continued to use a trauma model and apply that and actually see what the results were. And I found that that work really seemed to resonate with partners. It also seemed to really help couples and it seemed to be much more effective than the codependency model. That led to a real confidence in that view. And I started challenging the traditional model and articulating how just simply using the idea of codependency was actually a form of victim blaming and was often re-injuring partners and confusing them and re-traumatizing them and that it was clinically contraindicated and that there were a lot of problems with not seeing trauma and taking someone who's been abused and has trauma symptoms and then only viewing them as a codependent, which often really doesn't fit and often doesn't really even make sense to me. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of pushback for saying that pornography use and infidelity are abusive to wives, like a lot of pushback. For some reason now, everybody's like, yeah, they experience trauma, right? And I'm like, okay, well, if you can, if you can agree that they experience trauma, then why is it so hard for you to wrap your head around the fact that they're a victim of abuse? We talked about this in our last podcast. What caused the trauma. Well, abuse caused the trauma and they're a victim of abuse. And that's why they're having this trauma. It seems pretty logical. So it's very interesting to me that there's still so much pushback against it. Yeah. Like we talked in the last podcast, I think people are still very uncomfortable with the term abuse, even professionals. I think we're much more comfortable with physical abuse, but when it comes to psychological and emotional abuse, we are undereducated, don't really see it clearly. Specifically in the sex addiction field where people are actually recognizing trauma and there are therapists that have moved away from the co-sex addiction model and do use a trauma model for partners, I think still there's a tendency to view the trauma as coming from finding out about the secret sexual life, which definitely does cause a lot of PTSD. Discovery disclosure will often cause huge amount of trauma symptoms. I think some professionals are focused more on that injury and that event and that experience as causing trauma. I don't know if we've really expanded beyond that and really recognize that all the patterns of lying and deception and blaming and gaslighting also cause trauma symptoms. And I think that's where the field needs to go. And over time, I think that will be more clearly understood. But even among trauma professionals in the sex addiction field, the focus right now tends to be on discovery and disclosure as being traumatic and kind of a very simple reductionistic view at this point. Yeah, totally. Let's outline the problems with the codependency model or the co-sex addiction model. The first major problem is that it's actually a form of diagnostic mislabeling. It's taking someone who's been abused and has trauma symptoms and actually mischaracterizing it as codependency and as a disease called co-sex addiction. The second major problem with that, besides just 
a diagnostic mislabeling is that it actually blames a victim of abuse, which ends up being harmful. The sex addiction field, like I said, borrowed from Al-Anon, the concept of codependency, and has misinterpreted the reactions and symptoms that partners present with as signs of codependency or characteristics of codependency. A more accurate and scientific understanding is that partners and spouses are actually victims of lies, deception, and psychological manipulation, which does constitute a form of emotional and psychological abuse, and that their reactions are actually symptoms of trauma rather than codependency or co-sex addiction. The main label of control that codependency labels them with, like, you've got a control issue. You need to stop trying to control him. What else would someone who is being abused be trying to do besides stop being abused, right? Like, can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, so I think that's really important because from a trauma perspective, someone who does really understand abuse, any abused person will attempt to try to stop the abuse and will attempt to try to protect themselves. So to view the attempt to control the abuser or to protect against harm as being a problem, particularly to characterize that as a disease is a real mischaracterization of just basic human instincts and norms. So I find that particularly problematic because it really actually just makes to me common sense that if you're being abused, you're going to become preoccupied with that. You're going to try to protect yourself. You're going to be hypervigilant about the abuser and any potential forms of re-injury or being violated again or harmed again. That's all kind of typical in terms of uh, symptoms of people who are being abused. So the idea that any attempt to try to control or influence or protect yourself being a disease or a problem just doesn't make sense. So maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the so-called characteristics or symptoms of co-sex addiction, and then I can maybe give you my take on how they're actually better understood as trauma symptoms or uh, symptoms of someone who's being abused. So for example, one of the symptoms of supposedly co-sex addiction is preoccupation. And preoccupation is actually a normal reaction to abuse. Abused people will become preoccupied with the abuse and the abuser. This is often understood as hypervigilance, and it's actually a form of self-protection. For example, if someone started to steal from your online bank account and you noticed a lot of money being taken, it would be normal to begin to be preoccupied with your bank account, and you might end up checking it many times a day. You might also be thinking about it more often than you normally would, and all of that would be considered hypervigilance and a reaction to the violation of having money being stolen from you. So preoccupation is really normal when there's abuse happening or there's a potential for re-injury or a threat. And re-experiencing trauma is a well-established symptom of PTSD, and hypervigilance is a really well-established symptom of uh, trauma as well. Another example is enabling. There is a lot of assumptions that partners of sex addicts are somehow enablers, and 
maybe that's something that came directly from Al-Anon and partners or wives of people who are using drugs or alcohol. But for sex addiction, it's mostly something that's been deceptively compartmentalized and hidden. Most partners had no idea that there was a secret sexual reality and their partners have manipulated, lied, hidden it, covered up, and really kept that compartmentalized. So the idea that a partner would enable her husband to go see prostitutes or have affairs just doesn't really fit at all with my clinical experience and what partners actually present with just doesn't seem like it's really based in reality. I think another fundamental issue here is that women want to save their families. They don't want to break their families up. They're trying to do everything they can to have their family and their home be a safe place for them and their children. So their behaviors wouldn't necessarily be enabling of him. They would be an effort to keep their marriage or family or home safe. One of the symptoms of co-sex addiction is emotional turmoil. I think that's a classic symptom of abuse and trauma. I mean, we all know that emotional dysregulation is a symptom of trauma, and this may include anger, depression, grief, intense fear, anxiety, and that these are all normal emotional reactions to the types of violations that partners experience. So a spouse whose husband who's been cheating on her for years and, for example, may not have used protection and then had sex with her and maybe even gave her a sexually transmitted disease would definitely present with emotional turmoil, including all kinds of different emotions and reactions. And so to label her emotional reactions as a disease and as a sign of her being codependent or mentally abnormal somehow is... I think, highly problematic and really defies basic common sense. Yeah. One woman, I think her husband went in and then the clergy called her in and she was very numb and she was calm and she didn't scream and yell or anything like that. And he said, wow, you are reacting so well to this. So many women overreact or so many women like don't do quote unquote the right thing. So she was kind of feeling proud of herself like, oh, I dealt with this the right way. I was strong and I was logical. And I just thought this whole thing is so crazy right now. She's getting praise for facing her abuser in a logical, calm way, and she's sort of being held accountable for how she reacts to it. There is some type of expectation for how the victim should react is crazy to me. Really, any reaction is often seen as somehow pathological with the codependent model. I think you're right. And even that, I would say every victim of trauma or abuse is going to react differently. And that might even include being frozen or suppressing the trauma for a while and going into a highly administrative mode out of survival and to interpret her reactions as somehow better than the next partner or even to suggest that she's somehow reacting in an appropriate way versus an inappropriate way. It could be that she is really traumatized and is actually frozen or in a highly 
traumatized state and is functioning just administratively and suppressing a lot of like deeper reactions. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not saying that the way she reacted was wrong, but just to get praise for reacting, quote unquote, the appropriate way and then telling her all these other women don't act appropriately is just one example of how society in general doesn't understand abuse, nor do they understand what a woman goes through. A better thing for him to say would have been, I can see that this is how you're reacting and you can react any way that you choose. Victims react in a variety of ways. And I just want you to know that I'm here for you and that I support you. Like that would have been a better response rather than to put her above other victims who get angry. The other thing is that sort of implies to her, if you do hit that phase of anger, or if you do hit that phase of uncontrollable crying, that that's inappropriate. It implies to her that this numb sort of administrative way of functioning is the right way. And if at some point in your healing process that you have any other type of emotion, that that's going to be a bad thing. If we even go back to Melody Beatty's definition, I mean, she's actually saying a codependent person is one who has let another person's behavior affect him or her. Just the idea that you have any reaction and that you allow someone to affect you is seen as a problem. Which is crazy. Otherwise, abuse would be fine, right? It's fine if you abuse someone because if they get hurt, then it's their problem. Yes, because this is just not normal. One of the things that our community really wanted to know was your thoughts on COSA, which is a 12-step program for partners of sex addicts, or your thoughts on Essanon. But before I ask you what your thoughts are, I need to be transparent and say that I myself have attended a 12-step meeting with SA Lifeline that I absolutely love, that has really helped me with my relationship with God. I want to get that out there first and say that for me, it has been the number one way for me to reconnect with God in a way that I was missing before. I'm not necessarily anti 12 step per se. As I work the 12 steps, my relationship with God improves, but I definitely am anti victim blaming. First, I appreciate you sharing that. And then what I would say is uh, when traumatized people can be supported by others who share and can resonate with their pain, it can often be very helpful in healing. So I absolutely recognize the value of group support for abused and traumatized persons. And a lot of my work with partners has been in a group context. And so I've seen the power of being able to be with other people who are experiencing the same type of wounding and to be able to kind of hold your experience and your pain, which I think can be very powerful. I do want to start by saying that. And I also want to say that I appreciate that COSA and Essanon have at the very least attempted to support and have provided a space that's intended to help people who are impacted or in a relationship with a sex addict or have been impacted by sex addiction somehow. And I appreciate the human factors that exist in those spaces. And I definitely honor any help and the help that has come to those who have been suffering. And so I've never want to discount or negate the human support and any positive experiences that people have had. 
That said, I feel that both COSA and SNN have the same problems as the co-sex addiction model, which it basically is a program for co-sex addiction models. So I believe that the paradigm itself and the ideas that are sometimes promoted by COSA and SNN are still uh, forms of diagnostic mislabeling and victim blaming, and that they can re-injure and re-traumatize partners and spouses. If you go to the Essanon website, it says, as Essanon members, we're seeking recovery from our own progressive illness. If you go to the COSA website, it also says we attempt to control losing regard for our own well-being in the process. Whether we choose to call it sexual codependency or co-sex addiction, our problem is a serious and progressive disease as harmful to us as sexual addiction is to the sex addict. So. I see a serious problem when people who have suffered abuse and are experiencing trauma are told that they actually have a progressive illness and are convinced that it is their illness that is causing their symptoms rather than the abuse that is causing their symptoms. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So even though I really do enjoy and have found great benefit from my essay Lifeline meeting, there have been times where women say, you know, they're quote unquote, staying on their side of the street while also describing the abusive behaviors that they are subjected to. And thinking that if they just work on their side of the street, that somehow magically, something eventually will stop the abuse. It doesn't seem very logical, actually. And I'm thinking you got to get off the street, you need to get to safety. You can't just say to yourself, well, I know that he's abusive and these behaviors are hurting me, but I am going to choose to not let them hurt me, but I'm not going to remove myself from them. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to what we were just talking about is that somehow the goal is to not be affected by abuse. I think that emancipating yourself from abuse is healthy. And actually having reactions and responding is really normal and human. To pathologize any reaction and to somehow make the goal to not have reactions just doesn't make sense at all. So that's really one of the key problems with these programs is that if I was a partner, I would feel very confused and disoriented by all of that, which is unfortunate because a lot of partners are so vulnerable and they're so desperate for help. And so when they go to institutions such as a 12-step recovery program or a treatment program, um, they're very susceptible and vulnerable to being indoctrinated into some of these ideas. Yeah. For me, if people ask me, well, you go to a 12-step group sometimes, you know, how do you feel about it? My answer is if I work the steps with the only intention of becoming closer to God, or my higher power, not as I have some illness, or not that I had some part to play in his addiction or whatever. If I work it like that, I feel very comfortable, and I get a lot of benefit out of it. But I have actually gone through my book, my 12 step manual and like crossed out parts, (laughs) and written what I feel like is the right thing. And written different words where I feel like, wait a minute, like, with step four, where you're trying to find your character defects, right? For me, I was like, okay, well, I know there's some things that are keeping me from my relationship with God, rather than saying, 
okay, I know there's some things that are enabling my abuser. And as I have switched it to that, I found great benefit from it. But I do see women in 12 step, like just basically spinning their wheels because it's in relationship to their abuser or as a way to stop the abuse or something like that, rather than as their own personal journey of just, I would like to improve my relationship with God, or I would like to be more clear on who I am or something like that. And I don't know if that makes sense to you. And I actually want to know your true opinion. So if you differ, then please say it right now on the air. If you think no victim should ever go to a 12 step, do you think that, or are you thinking like if you, they use it appropriately, it could be helpful? Well, I, I definitely wouldn't say it should never, no victim of abuse or trauma should go because like I said, there's a lot of human factors just by being around people who are supportive and have gone through the same experience. So that alone can really help people. And I know there's partners who have been helped by that. And there are partners who have the wherewithal and are able to kind of weed through some of the parts that don't make sense to them or push back on certain ideas and, you know, find what is useful in the program and then leave the rest behind kind of thing. You know, I don't think it's a black and white issue. I also think sometimes there are partners who even just in terms of being so hypervigilant and having some ideas of focusing on yourself and trying to find comfort there instead of simply looking to the addict for reassurance all the time or some of those types of ideas, even though they can be problematic and they're still symptoms of trauma, like hypervigilance and things like that, that maybe there can even be some relief just by some of the concepts there. But again, it's, you know, sad that victims of abuse and trauma have to do all this gymnastics or sorting out of the program and that it's just not a clean place for them to get support without having to navigate so carefully in potentially dangerous, dangerous territory. Maybe I should write my own 12-step manual. For women who are victims that want to get closer to God, but you will not be blamed in any way for any of the... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But but I, I have just found that it was so helpful to me and I'm, I'm grateful for some of the concepts that I learned and not all of them. Right. Like I said, I, I sort of did rewrite my, my own book. And also I think it depends on the group. Like the group that I had was very, what I would call progressive and liberated. And so we all just like, we don't like this line. So we all cross that out together and, you know, things like that. So I think that was probably helpful, but other people are finding it to be extremely traumatizing. So I think it's just good to have a discussion about that, especially when, women just need support sometimes any way they can find it. They're so desperate for it. And I know like some of those programs like the COSA, if you go to their website, they have, you know, a list of bottom line behaviors, which I guess are kind of like acting out behaviors or they describe bottom line behaviors or things that the COSEX addict does to medicate uncomfortable feelings. And then on their list, they have things like sometimes feeling crazy and having a hard time separating the truth from lies when talking to the sex addict. And I just step back and look at that and think, well, 
the problem is that they're being lied to and gaslighted and manipulated. And of course, a natural outcome of that is that a person might feel confused and have a hard time separating the truth. And so to have that so clearly listed as a bottom line behavior and a problem that the victim has just seems really confusing to me. Like, I don't even get how that's logical. Those concepts to me just make me like kind of gag. That's not cool. That's never cool. It's just another form of victim blaming. So I hope I don't sound like I'm hedging that like I have found use in 12 step, but I also think it's really, really bad at the same time. I'm saying both of those things at the same time. Well, I appreciate it because I think that's true. I think, like I said, I think there's probably redeeming and helpful things going on there and just to even have a space that's supposed to be providing support for victims seems helpful and I think I've heard from a lot of partners that there are helpful aspects to it so I do think it's confusing and there's a duality to it you know so your experience makes sense to me yeah Okay, so let's talk about going beyond the sex addiction model. What are some of your other concerns in terms of the treatment of partners by the psychological field in general? All right. You know, we have talked a lot about specifically the sex addiction field and the co-sex addiction model, but just breaking out of that for a second and just looking at the psychological and treatment field at large one problem that's pretty common is there's often a view of the partner or spouse that's in a relationship with a sex addict or where they're sexual acting out. There's often a view that it, of, it takes two to tango type of mentality. And while it always makes sense that two people in a relationship obviously participate in it and create the dynamic that exists, it does not mean that a partner or spouse in any way invited or contributed to the decisions of the other person, particularly when those choices to create a secret sexual life are managed with ongoing deception and a lack of integrity and a violation of human rights and the behaviors that keep that secret sexual life intact include like patterns of lying or psychological manipulation or gaslighting deflection, withdrawal, cover-ups, hiding, and blaming, all of those behaviors, it does not take two people to engage in that behavior. It only takes one person to choose to engage in that behavior. You know, a lot of therapists, when they're presented with a relationship where there's acting out, just assume, well, there must be something wrong with the relationship, and there must be something about the relationship that caused the acting out. And I think this is an implicit way of still blaming the victim and blaming the relationship rather than solidly having the person who is sexually acting out and lying and gaslighting and all of that really own their behaviors as theirs and that that was their decision. So that lack of clarity still exists a lot in couples therapy and in just outside the sex addiction field, that assumption is still made. And, you know, I often tell people that I have a lot of clients who've been sexually acting out for years and have been in many relationships where they have always cheated and have always sexually acted out. And that problem is really theirs. And, you know, if you have someone who's been cheating their whole life and any relationship they've been in 
they've been doing that, that just kind of illustrates how the problem really isn't the relationship or the partner. It's actually a problem that they have. Mm-hmm. My community is all women who either suspect or know about their husband's porn use or their husband's infidelity. I'm very, very concerned with women who don't know about the infidelity and they don't know about the porn use. And they're like, oh, something's wrong in our marriage. So they show up in couple therapy. The therapist nor the wife know about the porn use. It's not disclosed. It's not a part of the discussion. Then it's like forever a couple's problem or a communication problem. They would never be able to get to the bottom of it. They would never in that scenario identify the relationship as an abusive relationship. At this point in the podcast, we had some technical difficulties and we had to end the interview. So I want to thank Dr. Minwala for coming on and let you know that he and I are planning on another podcast to discuss that scenario that I just talked about, where a wife decides, hey, we need to go to couple therapy because things aren't right. And she's not aware of the lies, the gaslighting and manipulation. If you're looking for support during this very difficult time, please join Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group. We have multiple sessions per day in multiple time zones. We would love to see you there and help support you and bring you some peace. Peace is the goal. Also, individual sessions are available with any one of our amazing coaches. Go to btr.org to schedule a session today. As always, if this podcast is helpful to you and you are inclined to do it, please rate us on iTunes or your other podcasting apps. Every single rating helps people find us. Please consider creating a recurring monthly donation to BTR so that we can keep bringing this message of hope and peace to women throughout the world. Go to btr.org, scroll down to the bottom, click on make a donation and set your recurring monthly donation today. Until next week, stay safe out there.